Some years ago, um, I, I received a letter uh, from someone I didn't know. Um, they just mailed it to me here at the church. It was a man who didn't attend here at uh, First Free. But their question was in this letter, they wanted to know what the free uh, meant in our church's name. <laughs> um, he didn't ask if our church was free from evangelicals, you know, like a sugar-free Coke, you know, where it's, uh, Coke is uh, free from sugar. He, um, he didn't uh, ask if uh, the, the word free meant that it was uh, free to attend our worship services or a church. He didn't ask that question. See, what he wanted to know was whether we believe that salvation was free or not. You see, he was struggling with a question that uh, Christians have asked uh, over the years. Um, there been quite a, a debate, books written about it. One group argues that all that's required for salvation is faith. A person can simply uh, say a prayer without any necessarily corresponding change in their life. And you know what? <laughs> They're good. Uh, they're saved. They have their fire insurance, you know. And to prove their point, they simply quote Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. They also go to the story of uh, uh, the... the uh, uh, jailer there in Philippi, you know, where Paul says to that jailer in Acts chapter 16, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they point to those verses and they say, see, nothing more is needed. All you need to do is pray a prayer of faith and you will be saved. That's all that's required. There's a second group, though, that argues, yes, yes, I agree, salvation is by faith alone, they say. But listen, a saving faith must also include some uh, intention to follow Jesus as, as Lord. You, you, you can't simply say, I want Jesus to be my Savior, but I don't want him to be my Lord. This latter group would accuse the former group of supporting what is called easy believism, or some call it cheap grace. While the first group would argue that the latter group was adding works to faith, what many might call lordship salvation. So who's right in this, in this debate? I mean, uh, what is saving faith? What, I mean, what does it really mean to say that we believe in faith alone? We're in week four of our series, Alone, Five Core uh, beliefs, um, and if you've been with us over the past several weeks, we have looked at three of the five foundational beliefs that we hold here at uh, First Evangelical Free Church. Um, we believe in the glory of God alone. We believe in Jesus Christ as Lord alone. Last week, we talked about the fact that we believe in the Bible alone as God's inspired and authoritative word. And today we come to our fourth essential non-negotiable belief, that is we are saved through faith alone. The reformers, uh, they love to talk about a great marvelous exchange. Um, 
You say, well, what's that mean? Great marvelous exchange. Well, it means that Christ on the cross took our sin, and in exchange, we were given his righteousness. That's the great marvelous exchange. Well, how does that exchange happen? Well, it happens through faith and faith alone. So then what does it mean to be saved by faith alone? Um, does it simply take a, a, a prayer? Or is there more? What is true saving faith? Uh, to help us answer that question, I, I want to invite you to take a look at a page out of our Lord's life. So I invite you to turn with me to Luke, Luke chapter 18 this morning. We're going to look at a story here, the story of saving faith, Luke 18, starting in verse 35. Luke 18, starting in verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. <laughs> but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Someone once asked Helen Keller, uh, the famous blind author and social reformer, they asked her, isn't it terrible to be blind? <laughs> And she responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than have two good eyes and see nothing. This blind man, he, um, he couldn't see Jesus, of course, but there were several things as you read this story that you realize that he could see. Um, first of all, he, he could see his own need, right? Um, uh, he needed sight. So when Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Of course, the blind man naturally responds, Lord, um, let me recover my sight, my ability to see physically. He also saw his um, desperate need for money. I mean, day after day, there he was, sitting by that road at Jericho, and, and he was begging, begging for money. I mean, what else could he do? In that society of that day, they made no special provisions for those who were disabled. I mean, he was, he was destitute. He also saw, um, from this desperate need, this man, he, he saw his spiritual need. He calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, it suggests he understood there was a spiritual need that he had. See, mercy is the love of God for sinners. It's what David asked for in his famous psalm of repentance and forgiveness, Psalm 51. Remember that psalm, the opening lines of that psalm says, David says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant 
mercy, blot out my transgressions. See, when this blind man, he asked for mercy, he was asking for something more than just his sight. He was asking for something more than just money. <laughs> now, he, he was seeing with his heart, and he was begging for his salvation. He saw his need for a savior. Have mercy on me. There's something else that the blind man saw. If you read this story, he saw who Jesus was. Do you notice the titles that he used as he cried out to Jesus here? He says, Jesus, son of David. Two times, son of David. Um, that title, son of David, um, would have been a familiar title to any Jew of that day who knew the Old Testament. In those days, the traditional Jewish synagogue prayers included a petition asking God to have mercy on the kingdom of the house of David, of the Messiah, of thy righteousness. So by calling Jesus the son of David, this beggar was acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior whom God had promised to, to send. Now, you ask, well, where did he get that insight from? I, I don't know. Maybe he had heard of Jesus' miracles, and maybe he also knew that Jesus had descended from the line of David. Maybe he put two and two together and came up with this conclusion. But whatever the case was, he somehow recognized that Jesus was more than just one of David's sons. He was God's promised Savior, Israel's rightful king. But listen, he also saw something else. Um, he saw that Jesus was his Lord. Look how this blind man addresses Jesus down in uh, verse 41. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus said. He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Um, now, certainly that was a, a sign of respect, um, addressing Jesus as Lord. But it was also a confession, I want to suggest, of faith. By calling Jesus Lord, this blind man was um, getting into a right relationship with God. There was one last thing that this blind man saw. Maybe you could say it was the first thing, really, that he saw. And that was Jesus himself. Um, through his miraculous power, Jesus uh, heals this blind man, enables him to see. Romans 10.13 says... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The blind man experienced that truth for himself. Jesus heard his cry, and so Jesus opened his eyes. By performing this miracle, Jesus fulfilled the claim that he had made when he first started his public ministry back in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where he said, God has sent me to recover the sight to the blind. <laughs> Jesus was doing that. And notice Jesus' words here in verse 42. Do you notice this? He said, And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. Literally, that could read, um, Your faith has saved you. Jesus saved this man, not only from his physical 
distress, but also from his spiritual blindness. He brought salvation to his house. So from this story then, let's draw several important lessons for us about saving faith. First, in answer to that opening controversy, saving faith is... I want to tell you, is, is neither easy believism, nor is it lordship salvation. In reality, both sides of this argument um, are wrong. See, the problem, is, the problem is not necessarily with the point on which the two sides disagree, but the fact that both sides have defined that word saved incorrectly. See, both sides have defined being saved as a satisfaction requirements, um, a satisfaction of the minimal requirements for um, entrance into heaven. Their focus was on how little do you have to do in order to be accepted by Jesus and get into heaven when you die. <laughs> but see, Jesus never once said, here are the minimal requirements to have salvation. I mean, just, just imagine this for a moment. Imagine a groom saying to his bride, what's the minimal commitment I have to give you to remain married to you? <laughs> imagine such a thing. Or, or, or how about a, a person who's applying for a job, goes into the interview and says, what's the minimal amount of work I have to do in order to get this job? <laughs> oh, can I tell you? It's not the way it works. Can I also tell you, listen, just a little insight. Heaven is not the kind of place you want to be if you just want to do the minimum, okay? <laughs> I want you to notice the three parts of this blind man saving faith. First of all, there is knowledge. I mean, this is the intellectual part. This man somehow knew and realized that Jesus was a son of David, and he had the power not only to heal him, but also to save him. It's impossible to have faith in Jesus Christ without knowing who he is and what he has done. That means for us today, having a saving faith, listen, we need to know what the Bible says, um, who the Bible says that Jesus is, and, and what the Bible says that Jesus has done. Faith means knowing that Jesus is crucified and the risen Savior who offers redemption from sin and reconciliation to God. We need to have that knowledge, know that. Second, a saving faith requires belief. Now, that's the emotional dimension of faith. It means accepting the message of salvation. Just knowing what the Bible says about Jesus, that I got, that's not enough. After all, James tells us that even the demons know that there's a God. The problem is they won't accept him as Lord. <laughs> but the blind man, he did accept Jesus. He cried out to him as Savior, and he called out to him as, as Lord, and he became convinced of the truth of Jesus Christ, and, and his heart believed in him as his Savior. Third, a saving faith involves trust. That's a willful part of salvation. The unconditional uh, surrender to, to, to Jesus. 
the writer of Hebrews defined faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. <laughs> I got to tell you, there's no better example of, of that definition than this blind man here sitting by this road, this Jericho roadside. Although he couldn't see, I mean, he was certain that Jesus could save him. Do you notice how persistent he is? Look at me in verse 37. Look, he says it. Um, they told him Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Listen, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Hey, be quiet. But look at And he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. This guy's persistent. Um, see, to exercise faith in Jesus Christ is to accept him and embrace him. A saving faith is not the least amount you have to believe in order to get in. A saving faith comes by a posture of total dependence, complete trust in God. Listen, when you put all your trust and your confidence in God, you receive forgiveness and you receive acceptance and you receive life from him. And that kind of posture, that kind of posture leads to salvation. This, of course, um, leads us into a second lesson this morning from this story. And that is a saving faith always leads to obedience. Over the centuries, people have been confused uh, about the relationship between faith and works, right? Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 8 says, For we hold that one is justified by, by faith apart from the works of the law. And then we turn later to the book of James, and James writes, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. <laughs> you wonder, what, what, what's going on here? Uh, I mean, are these two apostles, are they fighting? Are they, are, are they disagreeing? And I would say no. Not if you actually read what they're saying and you actually read who they're saying it to. Um, see, what they're both saying is that real faith, a saving faith, has an effect on what we do. That many times there's a difference between what I say, might say I believe and what I actually believe. <laughs> For example, um, go back to the Old Testament. Um, uh, there's a story there. You, you remember, you know, after Moses, he goes back um, from the desert, he goes back to Egypt to free the Israelites from Pharaoh, and he tells them about God, and he, and he performs all these miraculous signs, and the Bible says, and when they heard the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. They hear, right? And at that moment, in the safety <laughs> Of, of all of them being together there with Moses, uh, the Israelites, they believe. They ask Moses to lead them out of Egypt and out of slavery, and, 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 and Moses does. But a few chapters later, as they are leaving Egypt, as, as Pharaoh uh, you know, realizes what has happened, he changes his mind and he chases them um, down, and the Israelites then are trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army that's coming towards them. So now what do they say to Moses? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? 
I mean, what have you done to us by bringing us out uh, of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve Egyptians? (laughs) You see, when they were in Egypt, they said to Moses, hey, Moses, we believe, we'll follow you. But when the crisis hit, their cry changed, didn't it? Why'd you take us out of Egypt? (laughs) What's going on? Well, what they thought they believed, they didn't really believe. When trouble came, when their circumstances changed, their belief, (laughs) it, it, it turned to be fickle. I mean, that's what happens to us, doesn't it, at times? We say, ah, you know, I believe in the Bible. I, I believe what Jesus says in the Bible. And then we read what Jesus says. He says, don't be anxious about eh, what you wear or what you eat or what you drink. Uh, uh, trust in your Father in heaven. And we hear that and we, we sit in the sanctuary or we watch in our living rooms at home on the live stream and and we say yes yes of course I, i believe that but then we go home we look at our checkbook we read the newspaper we see inflation going up and we see the economy turning uh taking a turn for the worse and we realize man i have less money than i thought i did so what do i do I get anxious. I get stressed. See, it's good, I think, for us, isn't it? Sometimes to get a reality check on what we really believe. I mean, Christ does that over time. He does that with our beliefs. He he challenges us. Do we really believe what we say we believe? When James says... That faith without works is dead. He's not saying you need to have at a certain level of behavioral compliance in order to be saved. What he means is this. He means that if you claim to believe something, but your actions speak otherwise, then you don't actually believe what you thought you believed. (laughs) Returning the story of the blind man out of Luke 18. Noah said as soon as he could see, um, he became a disciple, a follower of, of, of Jesus Christ. Having been saved by faith, he then started to live by faith. Once he was saved, he showed his faith by, uh, to be real by living for Christ and, and, and glorifying God. His faith resulted in a change of heart. His faith resulted in a change of behavior. Martin Luther, the great champion of justification by faith alone, makes the same point. He said, faith is a living, creative, active, and powerful thing. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done, but before anyone asks, it already has done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone who does not do good works in this manner is an unbeliever. (laughs) Listen, it's just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is separate as it is to separate heat and, and light from fire or to separate wetness from water. <laughs> it cannot be done 
A saving faith always leads to obedience. One more lesson from the blind man's story, and I think it's the most important lesson of them all. I don't think we have this one up on the screen for you this morning, so I want to make sure those especially who love taking notes and making sure they get the notes, the blanks all filled out. A saving faith always depends on its object. A saving faith always depends on its object. You can have a little faith in thick ice and you survive. And you can have great faith in thin ice and you drown. It's not the amount of faith you have, it's the object in which you place it. That's most important. That's why the Bible says, it never says believe. It always says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible never says, have faith. It always says, have faith in God. The blind man has faith in God. He has faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And because his faith was in Jesus, he was made well. He was saved. For illustration's sake, let me go back to another Old Testament story. You know, Abraham um, is uh, presented frequently in the New Testament as this great model of faith. Um, But if you you know anything about Abraham's story, (laughs) um, you know his faith was not all that impressive, really. Um, I mean, Abraham's faith was so weak that at two different times he pretended that his wife, Sarah, was not his wife <laughs> because he was afraid that um, uh, he might be killed because of that. That's how weak his faith was. His faith was so weak, and instead of believing in God's promise that he would have a son, he decides, well, i got to hurry this process up, so he sleeps with a servant girl. His faith is so weak that at one time, in fact, he laughed at God. So why is he presented by the Apostle Paul and by James and by the writer of Hebrews as um, one who has this great faith? Well, it was because he realized that only God could give him a son. He realized that his own body was as good as dead because he was so old. That no pharmaceutical company uh, could help him out. He realized that he could do nothing, and he was completely dependent upon God alone to have a son. You see, the hero of Abraham's story, I got to tell you, it isn't Abraham. The hero is God. Abraham put his little faith in a Big God. (laughs) That was what made the difference. This blind man on that road uh, uh, to Jericho, he did the same thing. That's why Jesus says, listen, um, you only need faith the size of a mustard seed. Why? Because it's not about the size of your faith, it's about the size of your God. That's your take-home idea right there. It's not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God. 
It's not about the quality of your, your, your faith that saves you. No, it's the object of your faith that saves you. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. Listen, there has never been anyone like Jesus. His life, his love, his teaching, his sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection, all express his uniqueness. And I got to tell you, you can bet everything you have on Jesus. You'll not be able to find a better object for your faith. It's worth betting everything, every moment, every gift, every, every possession on this man, Jesus Christ. <laughs> if you're not placing everything at the feet of Jesus, then you're missing the greatest opportunity anyone has ever had. So walk by faith, friends. Walk by faith. Don't worry about whether or not you have enough faith. Don't focus on the quality of your faith. Focus on the object of your faith. Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. And you can actually do that. You know how you do that? Listen, if you've committed your life to Jesus, then just think about this phrase, child of God. Or think about this phrase, friend of God. Know that you've been accepted and you've been forgiven and you've been loved by God. <laughs> and let that knowledge influence the way that you live. Listen, don't live your life based on a teensy, weensy size of your faith. <laughs> live your life in the knowledge of the immensity, enormity of your God. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you're sovereign. Thank you for how big, powerful, almighty that you are. God, I, I pray that we might continue to grow in our faith and our trust in you in all situations. As we come against those crises in our life, Lord, might we continue to be reminded it's not the size of our faith, but the size of our God. Might we continue to trust in you. We thank you for who you are. In your son's precious name, amen.